Stay tuned for Corporations and Democracy. First you told us only that you could we know God, and if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod. For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors, for you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars. Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do. You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few, but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home. Not your property, it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would enclose the land all around the earth, our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who've sacrificed the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on the... The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and the hosts and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good evening and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for January 19th, 2022. The day that you may feel an egg on the top of your head as the federal government hit the debt ceiling today. 2023. 2023, yes. Hey, there's a little copy error I made. So, this is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. And by the way, we haven't heard news about uh, any anything sudden happening in Washington from the uh, hitting the debt ceiling today. So we'll have to look that up after the program. Well, now that most of the dust has settled on the November midterm elections, the data is in for spending on those elections. So with us today to discuss the trends in money in elections is the manager of editorials and investigations for Open Secrets, and that's Anna Masolia. Open Secrets is the nation's premier research group tracking money in U.S. politics and its effect on elections and public policy. It's a nonpartisan, independent, and nonprofit organization with a mission to track the flow of money in American politics and provide the data and analysis to strengthen democracy so Americans can use this knowledge to create a more vibrant, representative, and accountable democracy. Ms. Basolia holds degrees in psychology and political science from North Carolina State University and a JD from the School of Law at the University of the District of Columbia. So think about that, listeners. We have a lawyer on the program today who understands political psychology. This is going to be fun. Prior to rejoining Open Secrets in uh, 2018, Anna worked as a research analyst and editor at Bloomberg Tax. So let's have a look at money in the midterms. Anna Masolia, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Thank you for having me. Give me mic two, Steve. Um, I think. There we go. That should work. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, okay. We're, we we're still moving little levers around here. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for being with us. I, I wonder if uh, you could start us off with an overview. What are some of the trends that you, you and Open Secrets are finding in the elections and in the, the political scene that those elections are taking place in? 
Sure. Uh, so at Open Secrets, we track both federal level spending on elections as well as uh, lobbying and other attempts to influence public policy. We've also recently expanded to tracking the similar uh, numbers at the state level. So that includes spending through par party committees, campaigns, who their donors are, um, to some extent how they're spending, as well as lobbying in certain states that make those disclosures available. Um, the real takeaway, um, one of the biggest takeaways, at least from the 2022 cycle and this year in particular, has been just the increased cost of elections, um, both just all up and down the ballot, where we're just seeing this influx of money from big donors, but also from, to some extent, from grassroots support, um, but big money nonetheless overall, um, and just really driving up the cost of elections, increasingly divisive elections, where you're seeing uh, the most contentious co contests attracting the most funds in many cases. Um, and in addition to just candidate spending, we're also seeing heavy spending from groups like super PACs that can raise and spend unlimited sums on in support of candidates and to some extent from dark money groups, which um, through certain loopholes are able to similarly spend um, practically unlimited sums on influencing elections without even disclosing their donors. So we're probably breaking a lot of records with the amount of election spending, but I did see some cases where the billionaires weren't able to buy their 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 office. There was a few exceptions to the the rule. What do, what do you think about uh, the the big money players uh, versus the underdogs? Did, were you keeping score? We were indeed. Um, both on the effectiveness of different groups and where they put their money in, whether those were considered good investments for them, and also just on whether money won in races across the country. Um, just looking at House races right after the election, we noted that I think it was at least 96% of House races money won for the, mm. so the candidate who had raised the most money won the election. And that was before all of the House races were even called. And since then, it just continued to trickle in even more, um, where these really expensive House races um, and are just driving up the cost of elections. And in many cases, it's the incumbent who is uh, the largest fundraiser. Um, not all, that's not always the case, but oftentimes there is this incumbent advantage where once they are in office, fundraising becomes easier. You have a, a party infrastructure that is supporting you and it becomes very ingrained in the system where, there, where it does not lend itself to change very easily. Um, where the candidates who are attracting the most money, who have the most connections, oftentimes who are already in office, are the ones who are most likely to win again. Hmm. Yeah, but, um, we were thinking a lot about Georgia over the past months. This is kind of the poster child of the voter suppression movement. Um, but there was uh, they broke some records there, too, in the Senate race, uh, right? Um, and I... I think it was pretty close. Uh, the yes. incumbent managed to win, barely. Yes, uh, the Georgia election um, was not one that was decided um, by election day, so that ended up going to a runoff, which drove the cost of elections up there even more. Um, it ended up becoming the most expensive Senate election that cycle. Um, 
I believe there were some other more expensive Senate races in prior cycles because Georgia in particular actually has had multiple runoffs um, just in recent years that have made it a uniquely expensive state to run for Senate in where you have incumbents challenged by these very well-funded challengers. Um, in uh, So, for example, in the last cycle, you had two Republican incumbents who were both ousted by very well-funded Democratic challengers. And in this case, one of those Democratic challengers who became an incumbent, um, Raphael Warnock, was up for re-election and he was able to fend off, in this case, um, his opponent, um, Herschel Walker. Um, but both of them were really driven by big money, were received just significant funds directly to their campaigns, but also in the form of outside spending, um, making it um, the most expensive Senate race of this cycle and one of the most expensive Senate races ever. Wow. Let me quote for a minute from one of the articles uh, done by uh, Open Secrets. And this is from one of your colleagues, uh, Taylor Giorno. Uh, she begins an article titled uh, Walker Warnock Race Most Expensive in 2022 Cycle as Runoff Intensifies. And that was just days before the, the runoff election. The runoff election was in December 6th, I believe. Uh, this article is dated December 1st. But she begins that the U.S. Senate race in Georgia is the most expensive contest in, of the 2022 cycle, with spending by general election candidates and outside groups skyrocketing to $380.7 million. And that's of the end of uh, November. And she also mentions both of the U.S. Senate races in Georgia, which advanced to a January runoff, uh, which is uh, two, uh, two years ago, were also the most expensive in the 2020 cycle. More than 513.9 million poured into that particular race. So the cost is escalating. It is, and it's not uncommon now. While Georgia was uniquely expensive for those three races in particular, it's not uncommon now for Senate races to cost over $100 million um, and for the top races of the cycle to be hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, just looking at this cycle, we had the Pennsylvania Senate race where just outside spending alone, you had over $250 million uh, going into that spending by super PACs. You have the Georgia Senate race where $240 million of it was outside spending. You had races in Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, North Carolina, all of which, just looking at the outside spending, all drove up the race to over $100 million. Counting in the candidates um, and how much they raised boosts that up even more where the candidates raised... Um, in many cases, over $100 million each as well. Not for each candidate, but for each race, to clarify. Well, that's breathtaking. Um, you've also been looking at uh, foreign sources for campaigns, and there's this now sort of almost comic character on the scene, George Santos. <laughs> what did you find out about his connections to uh, another country to, to put forward his campaign here in the U.S.? Sure. So uh, to give some background on um, George Santos, who is a new representative uh, who was just rep who was just elected to Congress this election cycle. He, in addition to uh, some, I guess, 
potential foreign ties that have been unearthed um, both by our, our reporting and looking at campaign finance filings and also by other reporting is well known for his potential fabrications of his background. <laughs> but to put it nicely, there are a wide range of discrepancies between what he has claimed, what is in his resume, down to just downright really easily disprovable lies about his background, his family, his job, um, just so many different things. And reporting has continued to come out about um, him allegedly scamming people and being involved in these companies. And so just kind of across the board, he has just become really just scandal laden very, very quickly. And he really slid in under the radar during the election cycle, where none of this really was raised in any major way outside of a few small news outlets. None of this really made national media until after Santos was elected. Mm -hmm. And that scrutiny was paid to his background. And people realized that he that many that just long list we actually compiled um a list at least at the time that was intended to be comprehensive of his financial claims that he had um made that did not add up and that had been that we were fact checking and all of that and just in the days following when we compiled the list there were five more issues that popped <laughs> up and it's a daily thing at this point where something new was coming up about santos practically so you have the campaign finance issues where um, there are discrepancies with campaign loans. You have the fact that he took money from the cousin of a Ukrainian-born Russian oligarch, uh, Victor Vexelberg, which um, is one of the fo is the foreign tie that I think has raised a lot of attention recently. Um, and you also have just um, a, a number of other discrepancies. One other thing was he was um, he allegedly charged donors to access the Capitol around his swearing-in ceremony, <laughs> so effectively using government property to make money for his campaign if the allegations are true. Um, and just this wide range of allegations that are swirling about and continuing to mount on. <laughs> And, and some of these structures, some of the packs and and other um, things that they use to to get money to to uh, transmit the money from the donors to the candidate, they don't always have to say that it's foreign money, right? How do you find that out? That's that's a good point. So technically, foreign nationals are not allowed to give to influence U.S. elections. Um, uh, they are allowed to give to influence ballot initiatives, but not to influence candidate elections, um, ballot initiatives in some states. Um, but they cannot give to a candidate or to a super PAC and influence the outcome of an election. That said, there are many opaque ways that money goes into elections that we just aren't sure where it comes from. And there are very few accountability mechanisms in place that's, that could stop foreign money from coming through those channels. Um, one of those is 501c4 nonprofits that are supposed to operate for social welfare purposes, but can, because of lax enforcement of tax laws and uh, lack of clarity in certain rules, uh, can basically spend unlimited sums on political spending in support of candidates and never disclose their donors. Um, they, they tend to spend more on uh, issue advocacy, kind of painting a favorable or disfavorable picture of candidate. You also have shell companies in some cases where these groups could be LLCs um, that are created with next to no paper trail. And in many states, that's legal for there to not even be a person affiliated with those groups. 
And because the U.S. doesn't really have very strong beneficial ownership rules, um, there's no way to look up who was ultimately funding those companies, even if it's just going into a political committee. Um, we actually tracked um, LLC and shell company contributions at Open Secrets internally. It's something that we don't have posted on the site because um, it would open us up to a lot of liability if we just started labeling companies shell companies and some of them not actually be because it's hard to tell in some cases between real estate holding companies and shell companies where you really draw that line. Um, but it's something we track internally and just looking at LLCs and LLCs in particular that don't have much of a paper trail, that don't have real estate holdings, that don't have a person affiliated with them in their corporate records, that don't really have any other information other than those contributions, that spending and giving is increasing significantly in recent years. That's something that we've seen and tried to track. Um, and so that's something that is going largely unchecked. Um, there are some organizations that file complaints with the Federal Election Commission when this happens. Technically, it is illegal if you are making a conduit contribution and money is going into a shell company and it's your money and you're giving it to the shell company for the purposes of giving it to influence an election. Um, in particular, if you're trying to skirt um, a foreign national pr prohibition or skirt contribution limits or there's another reason you are doing it to try to hide your identity, um, there are rules in place that should be preventing that, um, and it can trigger either civil uh, civil issues with the Federal Election Commission or even in some cases if it's coupled with other charges, even rise to the level of a criminal investigation with the Department of Justice. But oftentimes if it's something on the simpler end, it won't do that. But there have been more complicated conduit schemes with multiple individuals and many and just lattices of shell companies involved um, in recent years funneling money from foreign sources that have risen to that level as well. So I'll pose the question, but but wouldn't expect you to know just, uh, uh, you know, how, how, when was the last time a prosecution took place for any one of those kinds <laughs> of crimes? Um, there are ongoing investigations, at least. Mm -hmm. um, I am familiar with at least a couple over the last year, mm. a year or two, where it depends on what charges you're looking at, but there have, at least in the past couple of years, been prosecutions related to uh, foreign agents and foreign agent disclosure where people have worked for foreign nationals or foreign governments and mm -hmm. failed to disclose that to the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. There have also been a few uh, illegal conduit contribution schemes. There was one where... Uh, not just the political operatives who are funneling money in, but even a former member of Congress was implicated, or from, I don't know if he's former or current, but he was indicted not but because he received the money or was complicit, but because he, because he lied to investigators. <laughs> okay. mm -hmm. um, otherwise, he would have been probably off scot-free, mm -hmm. but he lied to investigators about <laughs> it. Um, and it's very rare for lawmakers to usually get swept up in these, no matter what, because it's hard to be able to prove what role they had in receiving the contributions, but when they lie to investigators, that tends to be the way that they have that in to charge them as well. Mm -hmm. um, but that there was a um, uh, there was that case last year, I believe, where they had these lattices of shell companies going in. I can think of maybe three or four examples in the last couple of years, but oftentimes you don't necessarily. The end of those cases isn't always a clean conviction. Many times there are plea deals that happen. Um, one in one case. Uh, there was, I'm trying to remember what the specifics were, but effectively the person who was convicted paid millions and millions of dollars to DOJ and never had to go to jail mm -hmm. as a part of his plea yeah. deal. 
um, and was also complying with DOJ's investigation. <laughs> but apparently that's something that you can do is if you comply with the investigation and pay enough, you don't have to, <laughs> you, there aren't really consequences. That's the American way. <laughs> and so I don't know if that's, I, I, I know that's not the case across the board, but that uh -huh. one case really stuck out to me that there were so many, and not just elite conduit schemes, but also other yeah. fraud charges and money laundering involved in this. And he just paid this large sum and mm -hmm. was nothing happened <laughs> he was just kind of let off well, and so there aren't always uh i guess clean and um satisfying resolutions to the cases uh -huh. even when there are indictments and investigations well, with the federal election commission too it can take 10 years or more for there to be a resolution in many mm -hmm. cases mm -hmm. the most recent example of a dark money group being required to disclose its donors that i can think of was like maybe two or three years ago and that was so that would have been 2019 late 2019 and that was for a case from 2010 and the group was oh, long shut down <laughs> so it, <laughs> yeah. many people didn't even remember the group that was around those people who were do, who didn't know who mm -hmm. the group was the candidate they had long since shut down about a decade earlier mm -hmm. and so you have just this huge either lag in accountability or lack of accountability at all mm-hmm well I'm I'm pleasantly surprised there's a few investigations going on but <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you, you knew about those uh, back to the Santos guy for a minute um, uh, my understanding and, and uh, uh, tell me if this is yours also that you know he could have told all the fibs he wanted about his background but that's not consequential for his remaining in Congress but the financial issues could lead to some consequences about that is that your understanding also it's unlikely that the fibs would lead to any severe consequences mm -hmm. technically if they there are so there's ethics issues that could be raised by certain things um that could potentially so you have like the house committee on ethics and you have their like a variety of government ethics agencies that could get involved but most of what they would do would either be um the party in charge could remove him from committees or there could be very minor uh, repercussions in those cases but once you get into the financial issues in particular um, there are allegations that he was involved in a company that um, had been flagged as part of a ponzi scheme by the F at the sec mm -hmm. and not only was he involved in the company he lied about how long allegedly sorry allegedly lied about <laughs> how long he was involved in the company and it was originally thought that he had left it much earlier, but he is actually still involved in the company until at least 2020, like 2021, 2022, and had created um, partnerships with some of the other individuals who worked there. So once you get involved in a Ponzi scheme, once you get involved in potential campaign finance discrepancies, there are potential civil charges, criminal charges. I don't know if he'll actually be charged with anything, but they certainly raise questions of those. Mm -hmm. He also even, not just in the US, but faces potential charges in Brazil uh, for writing a bad check when he was, I believe, 19 years old. And so they're even <laughs> restarting that case um, because apparently it just, they he just fled the country at that point and he was young and you almost feel bad for him at that point since he was so, he was young and didn't have money but his response to that was he fled the country just kind of forgot he had charges in brazil and thought they would go away <laughs> and now he's a, and then ran for congress and i feel like that's something that you address before running for federal office or at least would think to address <laughs> and so there's just so many different things coming out of 
the woodworks from his background um, and continuing to do so. Um, there was also um, one reporting this week that he had, um, I think, allegedly swindled a veteran and his sick dog um, oh, and taken all of their God. money with a GoFundMe. It was the saddest story I've read recently, um, but um, not necessarily relevant to campaign finance, but it just kind of stuck with me that he had apparently, and again, these are just allegations, but he had, he had said he would set up a GoFundMe or an account to help raise money for this um, disabled veteran's sick dog who was dying so the dog could get surgery. And instead of giving the money to this disabled veteran for his sick dog that needed surgery, he took the money and ran, <laughs> allegedly. And the dog died. And I was like, this is just like about... Like, it, you can't make something up that bad. Like, it almost is like a story that someone has made up for how horrible this someone is. Not to judge this man in any way, in a totally non-person way. It's just almost unbelievable at this point how many things are coming out. That's about as low as you could go. Well, while, we're, while we're on the topic of some of these shady characters, and you did mention Ponzi scheme a, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, what's known about this Sam Bankman-Fried character that uh, is in the news these days? Uh, he was apparently donating to, uh, I'm not sure one party more than the other, but uh, maybe you have some update on that. Sure. So um, we were tracking his finances throughout the 2022 cycle, originally because he was emerging as this big cryptocurrency donor, which mm -hmm. uh, is a new and emerging industry within uh, the campaign finance space, which has been kind of interesting to see that emerge and not all of the donors are necessarily fraudulent or related to this in any way. But one thing that we have been tracking is that rise of cryptocurrency donations and industry donations. Um, he had announced very early in the year that he was going to pour these just huge sums into influencing politics. And by the end of the year, he <laughs> his whole um, approach had completely turned around. He had um, He's been charged with... Um, multiple different things, I believe, related to fraud and had run, had attempted to flee the country, allegedly, at one point. And at this point, you have lawmakers facing whether or not they should be returning his contributions. Um, one of the issues that that has also raised is he's been very candid in many of his interviews. Um, and while uh, a lot of the contributions that we were able to track from Federal Election Commission records were to Democrats, he has effectively just said he gave more money through dark money groups to Republicans and just has volunteered that information in interviews. So we really don't know how much he's given as a, as a whole or if he was making that up. It's so hard to tell. And because there are no real disclosures that are publicly available for that type of information to be able to reliably track what money is going into dark money groups. We don't know if he was just blowing smoke and saying, oh, yes, I gave all of this money. We don't know if he gave significant amounts more that we just aren't aware of. Um, and so I think that that's one other issue that it's really raised as well is how much money of his went into politics that wasn't even disclosed. Mm -hmm. Let me take a moment to tell uh, listeners that we're speaking with Anna Masolia of Open Secrets. We're talking about money in the midterm elections, which is growing each election, as you can imagine. And starting at, well, starting now, it's just about the bottom of the hour. If you'd like to call in with any questions or comments on the subject, our number here is uh, area code 707 895 Two four four eight again eight nine five two four four eight. 
So let me ask you, um, if you had to give the Federal Elections Commission a grade, what would it be? Oh, her sound is off. Whoops. I'm sorry about that. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily give them one grade or the other because I think that there's a lot of circumstances there that different people are... Um, I think everyone is trying their best for what their views are. Um, I think that there is a lot of dysfunction in how the Federal Election Commission was set up. You have a commission that, by its nature, is set up to deadlock, where you have an equal number of Republican commissioners and Democratic commissioners. And so it's not uncommon for when a matter goes before them to have half of the commissioners say, no, we don't want to pursue this and the other half want to. <laughs> and at that point, you don't even pursue investigating an issue, even if it's something very brazen. In some cases, uh, there are chronically underfunded, understaffed. And so you have these really, in some cases, really wonderful staffers, great commissioners who are doing the best they can with what they have. But I think that without a better system behind it, it becomes really difficult to do those jobs. That's really sad. Oh. Yeah, I, I know that that sounds like the whole rest of the Congress right now. <laughs> um, we, we were talking a little bit about foreign money when we were, we were talking about the remarkable George Santos. Do you, do you have an idea about how much foreign money is coming to us? Whoops, hang on. Your, um, Sorry about that. I'm not sure why it keeps going out. Um, so we don't have the total for how much money is going into U.S. elections from foreign actors because technically it's not supposed to be going into U.S. elections to influence politics at all. Um, however, we do know that some amount of that money is going into uh, ballot measures. Uh, ballot measures in some states are... Uh, foreign interests, foreign nationals, foreign companies are legally allowed to spend to influence the, the outcome of ballot measures. So these elections are considered um, more similar to lobbying than to candidate elections, because when you have a ballot measure on the ballot, um, the voters are basically just voting on whether a law should be changed. And uh, the Federal Election Commission decided, I think about a year ago, that that is something that foreign nationals are allowed to participate in and to spend on. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do have, to some extent, money going in that way. That's something that we've only recently started to track, so we aren't sure of the full scale of that yet. Um, you also have money going into lobbying, which is something that we do track much more comprehensively. This is disclosed under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, and we've just tracked billions and billions of dollars um, in that case. So the Foreign Agents Registration Act covers um, not only uh, direct foreign lobbying, so where you have foreign uh, companies or foreign governments hiring a lobbyist to go influence a lawmaker directly, but also attempts to influence public opinion. So this includes propaganda efforts, um, and uh, it could be state-run media if it falls into um, this, the propaganda effort. If it falls into that definition of propaganda efforts, if it's a media outlet that's not impacted by the editorial policies of uh, of the heads of state, that type of thing, it wouldn't fall into here. But if you have like explicit propaganda efforts, if you have um, variety of different things that can be disclosed in there. Um, and so that's something that we track. We input these numbers every day. We get them from the Department of Justice. 
And just since 2016, we've tracked more than $3.8 billion in spending, which is mm. just a huge total um, going in. And that's just what's been disclosed in these documents. That doesn't count all of the um, covert Russian meddling, uh, all of the uh, Chinese bots that have been, have reports have come out about. There's so many other examples that aren't even disclosed in this. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, but it does provide a lot of really interesting information about what we do have. Um, and when and there, it's also an intersection between that and elections, since even though these foreign nationals are not allowed to give to campaigns or influence um, the outcome of elections directly when they involve candidates, their foreign agents or foreign or lobbyists can. So as long as the lobbyist they hire is a U.S. national, they're allowed to give as much as they want. And it's not uncommon for lobbyists employed by clients, but also by foreign nationals to give to a member of Congress the same day they meet with their office or the day before they meet with their office. And there's nothing illegal about that. Oh, this is pitiful. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's embarrassing. Um, I ran into a new term reading um, through some of your articles, and this is uh, something I, I, you can tell us how new it is, but it's called a pop-up pack. Can you tell us a little about this term, which is uh, perhaps uh, perhaps new in recent years? Absolutely. So pop-up PACs are, to some extent, a newer phenomena. They've been around for a few election cycles, but have increased in frequency. This is when a super PAC or political committee is created um, within a few weeks of an election, um, whether that be a primary or general election, they could be created so close in time to the election that they miss the, the deadline. Um, there's a cutoff point with the Federal Election Commission that mm -hmm. if you're created after that date, you don't have to disclose your donors before mm -hmm. the election, and you don't have to disclose <laughs> most of your spending before the election either. And so uh, they wait until that date, and many of them are created literally the day after that date, <laughs> but they have two weeks or so, of, or a couple of weeks of spending unlimited sums. We see them pour millions of dollars in, millions and millions of dollars in, just one group will pour this in, just in those two weeks after the election, or before the election, mm -hmm. and, only after the election, after voters go to the polls, will they know who was that trying to influence their vote. Yes. Um, oftentimes, mm -hmm. there'll be party committees at the national level seating very state-focused groups. Um, that's something that we've seen increasingly common, where the groups, the pop-up packs or super packs, will be uh, state-branded, uh, and but they will actually be seated by a group at the national level. Um, or uh, sometimes they may be even funded by dark money groups. So the disclosure after the election isn't even that useful because you just find out that they're funded by a group that's anonymously funded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Incredible. A huge loophole and written into the law, apparently. So somebody had to know what the loophole was going to be in the future when they wrote that law. But This whole dark money thing, I understand there is a in dark money act is there any hope do you think um there's been multiple different proposals to try to increase transparency around dark money to uh either disclose requiring groups that spend on independent expenditures or political ads to disclose donors um many of them have been proposed in prior congressional terms and so I don't I wouldn't say I'm not hopeful for them, but they are something that has been has happened in prior cycles and hasn't been successful. 
Um, but there's certainly, I think, increased momentum to address these issues, to address corporate PACs as well as dark money groups. Um, and I think even just making sure that we have the that uh, federal agencies like the FEC and even the IRS have the resources they need to enforce the laws on the books and really do their job, I think that that's even a step in the right direction and something that's just so important. Are there any other things about dark money that, that are new that you want to let our listeners know about? Sure. So during the 2022 cycle, uh, we worked hard to track dark money and followed some of the trends in relation to how dark money groups were funneling money into U.S. elections. When it came to federal elections, we were really surprised to see how little 501c4, so these nonprofit groups that are oftentimes um, synonymous with dark money, how little they were actually reporting spending to the FEC. Um, and so instead of reporting their spending directly, instead of spending directly on ads that say vote for, vote against, they were much more often either spending on those issue ads that paint a favorable or disfavorable picture of a candidate. So attacking a candidate saying, this candidate's awesome, or this candidate is terrible <laughs> on this issue. And even though it has the effect of boosting or attacking a candidate, because they're avoid avoiding telling people to vote for or against them, those ads do not have to be disclosed to the Federal Election Commission. Spending on the ads does not unless they are traditional media within the 30 days before gen or mm. 30 days before gen or 60 days before general or 30 days before a special election. Mm. And if you are an online ad, so if they're running online advertising, which is increasingly common, those ads don't have to be disclosed at all. So only if you have express advocacy on online ads, do those have to be disclosed to the Federal Election Commission. And in many cases, online ads don't lend themselves to the type of uh, format that you have vote for, vote for this, mm -hmm. and all of this language there. It's much easier to create graphics that would be more engaging to users anyways and paint that, that picture of a candidate attacking them or boosting them in more creative ways um, that might be more effective than just telling someone how to vote anyways. Um, and then the other way that we've seen dark money groups funnel even more money into U.S. elections uh, it, that they've kind of shifted away from that direct spending is funneling money into super PACs, so closely tied super PACs. Uh, and during the 2022 cycle, we saw that really uh, proliferate. Uh, that's something we start, started seeing to some extent in 2018, and it really grew in 2020. And um, in the 2022 cycle, it continued. We saw more than $600 million in this cycle, just money going from uh, dark money groups to super PACs. Um, often, and that also includes money from shell companies. Oftentimes, though, the money is coming from 501c4s affiliated with the super PACs that they're funding. Some of the top donors are these groups um, affiliated with Democratic Party leadership and Republican Party leadership. Um, One Nation is affiliated with the Senate Republican leadership and Majority Forward with um, with uh, Senate Democratic leadership. And these groups then give money. So Majority Forward gives to the Senate Majority PAC and One Nation gives to uh, Senate Leadership Fund, which share many of the same staff and resources, have shared addresses. And because of the format of and the setup of this, the super PAC, is legally required to disclose its donors, but it can just disclose that it got money from its closely tied super PAC. And oh. it doesn't have to disclose the ultimate source of funding. Um, and in the case of One Nation, I think it was 
uh, something like 60 million last time I checked. I'm, it might have grown since then that is that it had given to uh, the Senate Leadership Fund. And so it's not even small amounts. It's tens of millions of dollars going from the dark money group to a super PAC run by practically the same people out of the same place. Okay. Um, it's, that's something we've really worked to track this cycle as well. Loopholes in the loopholes. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Yeah, loopholes in the loopholes upon loopholes. Um, back a few minutes, you mentioned uh, ballot initiatives, and I did read in one of the reports from Open Secrets that the the, the two um, most expensive ballot initiatives in the uh, recent cycle were in California, and I uh, but didn't didn't mention the results, and I don't off the hand off the cuff know. Uh, thought I'd ask if you happen to know what, how those fare, and I just, I just forget what they were. But um, I would have to double check. But my understanding was that um, the ones we were tracking, the very expensive ones, were successful. But I would have to double check on that. Okay. Um, that's not quite my area of expertise. Um, is the ballot initiatives? There were so many across the country, but they certainly were extraordinarily expensive. Um, where you had, I believe, over four hundred million dollars mm-hmm. going into yeah, just this one measure related yeah. to sports betting. Oh, yeah, um, and like really mm-hmm. pouring in. And that's something across the country that's really, as more divisive issues are going to ballot measures mm-hmm. instead of just going to state legislatures, it's mm-hmm. something that we're seeing just increasingly common. And of course, these ballot measures are something that foreign nationals can pay to influence as well. That's one of those mm-hmm. areas that the FEC has said it's okay for foreign companies, foreign interests to spend um, to influence. Mm-hmm. One more time, I mentioned to listeners that we're speaking with Anna Masolia of Open Secrets, and it's about money in the midterms and trends in money in elections and money in politics. And if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to call in about, the number here is 707-8. Yeah, there really are a lot of interest here in looking at the the biggest lobbying organizations. I see that four out of the top ten have to do with uh, health care, the Blue Cross and the pharmaceutical research manufacturers, American Hospital Association, the AMA. Uh, what do you have to say about when you have that many lobbyists that are that powerful in in one category healthcare lobbying has really grown in recent years in particular during the coronavirus pandemic we've seen just this it was already a big a big industry it was already one of the top but during the coronavirus pandemic we've really seen just uh, an even larger boost to that spending. Um, and it's not just the numbers that we look at with that. It's also the fact that they are employing revolving door lobbyists who are former government officials who can then leave and go to these firms, become lobbyists, or go to even the companies in-house and become lobbyists and go back and lobby their former uh, former uh, colleagues or even former staffers. Um, and so I think that that even adds more to that power. I know that the healthcare industry is one is one that has a lot of revolving door clients as well. Um, and that's certainly something that we've seen really grow um, over this. Healthcare has become this divisive issue um, with uh, surprise medical billing being one of the issues that's really popped up a lot um, as we look at those lob- at lobbying, as well as um, pharmaceuticals generally. Um, but there's just a wide range of issues um, of insurance coverage, of a variety of things that really um, are hot button issues for people right now that have made it an area of focus. 
You know, the National Rifle Association, the leadership had kind of a meltdown, and then there's even more and more mass shootings going on. I think there was a belief that that the gun money was going to diminish at least a little bit, but you haven't found that, or have you? Um, we've seen gun money shift to some extent. Um, in the initial part of the 2022 cycle, we did not see as much spending by gun rights groups as we were expecting. But by the end of the cycle, they had poured significant amounts of money in. And so it was kind of, um, and this is a trend that they had in 2020 as well, where up until I believe in August during the 2020 cycle, um, and in this case, I believe it was just weeks before the election day where we saw just this large influx of funding going into um, spending in particular, where in the 2022 cycle, they ended up accruing over 14 million in outside spending. Um, and you also see spending on lobbying as well as those direct um, as the spending in support of uh, federal as well as in the support of federal candidates. Um, and you've seen millions of dollars going into lobbying as well. We don't have the final total yet for the 2022 lobbying since Q4 reports, I believe, are due tomorrow, actually. Um, but uh, we're, but we're uh, seeing, I believe, it was over $2 million just through Q3, which I don't know if that'll put it on track for more than the prior year since we had over $4.9 in 2021, but still is a pretty significant sum. Wow. And the 4.9 million was a record for them. So you're still seeing just even with all of the infighting, with the fact that they declared bankruptcy, with all of the spending on legal fees, you're still seeing pol the, their political activity being made a priority um, among all of that. Um, and especially with they've got a, a super, a relatively new super PAC that has been a big spender. So their money has shifted from spending through their dark money group to spending through their super PAC which actually gets money from their dark money group. So it's not really much of a change in funds, but a change in the vehicle through which they're spending. Um, and so it's been kind of an interesting shift for them to follow. Oh, interesting. Steve found a graph of uh, spending before and after and way, way after Citizens United. Do you want to tell us what your thinking is on uh, what that's done for us, uh, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, uh, what, 13 years ago? Thirteen, 13 years ago in uh, three days. Yes, indeed. Uh, so ever since so the supreme court's uh, citizens united decision in 2010 uh really opened the door for uh an influx of different and new political spending um the decision itself uh enabled corporations to spend on express advocacy to really become more involved in politics in a way that they hadn't before corporations also including many nonprofit organizations such as dark money groups because many of them are incorporated so using corporations kind of is a loose term that includes any incorporated entity um, as well as the supreme court's speech now decision which came later that year and opened the door for super PACs to uh, start to exist um, kind of building on the supreme court citizens united decision since both of those decisions came into effect in 2010, or were at least decided in 2010, uh, we've just seen a huge increase in spending, in fundraising, and just in the overall cost of elections. Um, just this election cycle, the 2022 cycle, we saw more than $16.7 billion um, was our projected total. Um, we're still tallying all of the final um, the final counts, so that's subject to change, either increase a little bit or decrease a little bit because we're processing year-end filings within the coming weeks. 
but 16.7 billion is just this <sighs> huge sum, and that's state as well as federal um, because we were able to calculate the overall total this cycle um, and just looking overall at how much it's increased in the 13 years since Citizens United much of that has there's been an upward trend in spending it's not just static where every year you get a large amount of spending um more than half of the nine million in outside spending so spending by groups like super PACs uh since 20 um so there's nine million in spending by groups like super PACs since 2010 and more than half of that in just in the last two election cycles and so you're seeing huge amounts of money from super PACs from dark money groups coming in just these last two election cycles so that's 4.9 million in the last two election cycles 9 million uh or sorry 9 billion um not million billion <laughs> the citizens united it's hard to remember it's billion not million in some cases since it's such a large number um so yeah 9 billion in outside spending since uh, the supreme court citizens united decision and more than half of that just two cycles and so it's really driving up that spending um, even as more dark money groups aren't reporting their spending to the FEC. So you also have um, countless more spending um, by these dark money groups on issue ads that aren't being reported. And so it's just um, really just a substantial sum. And so much of that outside spending in particular is while the spending is disclosed to the FEC, the funding sources are not. So uh, we were actually just looking at these numbers because the anniversary is coming up and uh, I think it's three out of every $10 of outside group spending since 2010 came from undisclosed sources, if you mm -hmm. count both the spending and contributions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a huge sum coming from shell companies and dark money groups um, with so much of that of that going to coming from sources people don't know. And I think that that's really um, I think it's important for voters to be able to know where their political messaging is coming from so that they can have more informed decisions as they go to the polls, whether that be uh, pop-up packs denying people the information at a timely manner or these groups that are not giving information about their donors ever. I think that that is increasingly an issue and much of it can be traced to Citizens United, at least that increase. So we owe a lot to Citizens United. <laughs> Which makes me want to ask you, what do citizens do? I, I know you coach journalists on what things to look for, what, where they should be looking in multiple places that they should look for the same thing. Uh, what advice do you have for poor us trying to figure out how to elect the right person when everything is so hidden? I would highly recommend, and I'm probably a little biased for this since I work for Open Secrets, but... Um, I would recommend going to Open Secrets. We've tried to make our tools as user-friendly as possible. Um, and our tools, while they're used by journalists and academics, are also used by high schoolers, by average members of the public, to be able to look up who they want to vote for or who uh, their member of Congress is so that they can get a better understanding of who's representing them uh, in Congress uh, or who the, they might be faced with voting for, what, what interest that person is funded by. And I think that that's something that's really important. Um, not only can you look up uh, who your member of Congress is, you can also now look up who the governor is of every state. Um, and we're working on integrating state legislatures and other state-level offices as well. Um, we're still in the process of revamping the state with much of the state-level data, so it's going to become increasingly user-friendly. But at least for much of the federal data, you can go tally down. Um, there's like a sorry, toggle down, and you can just choose your state. 
um, and you can see all of the information about who's running in your state, how much money they're bringing in, what industries they might be benefiting from, uh, who, what outside groups are supporting them, and uh, really get a more complete picture of what industries they might uh, be more likely to be beholden to if they, if and when they do get in office. Um, and you can also, there's a tool called Get Local where people can actually type in their zip codes and see giving trends around them as well. So you can not just see uh, who's getting the money, but also see how how groups around you are giving too. So we have a lot of really great tools for people to specifically learn about their communities. Okay, that's opensecrets.org. And there are some bright lights, though. I think Bernie sort of started showing us the way, and now uh, Katie Porter, a uh, re uh, representative from California, uh, they're making a big show, and, and maybe AOC and others, about uh, how that all the money they don't accept, and, and these people are, are winning their seats. Do you want to talk a little bit about the people that are able to run their campaigns without resorting to all this uh, crooked, crooked stuff going on? Sure. Uh, so no pack pledges are something that are increasingly common with members of Congress and with candidates generally. Uh, predominantly, at least initially, it was something seen among Democratic candidates and liberal candidates and progressive candidates. However, we're now seeing it um, to some extent across the political spectrum with uh, some Republicans uh, taking no PAC pledges as well and really rejecting, in particular, rejecting corporate PAC money um, in these cases. Um, so in some cases, these candidates will still accept PAC money from, uh, for example, uh, political party-affiliated PACs, but not corporate PACs, um, and really try to reject funding from groups that they see as potentially uh, presenting a conflict of interest when they would be in office. Um, and this is part of a much larger trend where we're seeing an increase in small donor contributions and grassroots support and campaigns powered by grassroots support. Uh, you have platforms like Act Blue and Win Red, so Act Blue on the on the left, Win Red on the right, that make it really easy uh, for do for small donors in particular to be able to give to their candidates of choice, um, and it's much more accessible in a way that. It was not in the past, um, and has and has made organizing much more easy through online ads as well. Um, I think that there were some challenges posed by the pandemic with in-person organizing and door knocking, but you also have seen many uh, grassroots efforts and campaigns to some extent really uh, rebrand and pivot towards an online focus in a way that to some extent has benefited them because they're able to reach people through these online ads and also fundraise to some extent in a way that is much more seamless than if you knocked on someone's doors and told them you're a candidate and then asked them for money. And so it's becoming much more normalized and also getting people much more involved. Um, there's been some psychological studies on even if someone is just giving a small amount to a candidate, they are more likely to feel engaged. They're more likely to potentially go out and vote uh, for the candidate than if they don't feel like they've had any type of investment. Um, so even if it's just the small amount versus someone who's giving thousands and thousands of dollars, it helps someone to be motivated and really feel a part of that process in that way. Um, and that's something that we're seeing just increasingly with Porter's campaign for Senate, 
we were uh, we've been looking at uh, her finances. We've conti continued to look at other politicians who have taken no PAC pledges. Uh, some of them have checkered. Um, checkered a fulfillment of their promises where not all of them have completely stayed away from corporate plaque pledges uh, in the in terms of Porter however uh, she had a pretty great record of uh, not taking money from corporate PACs uh, a very clear um, rejection of that uh, we have a new article on our site I believe from last week uh, outlining some of her finances um, and where she where at least her house campaign had gotten them uh, and looking at some of the support she had gotten, uh, and uh, also looking at corporate PACs generally has been something that we've really started to look at at Open Secrets, uh, and seeing how, uh, as people become more aware as consumers, uh, they may uh, choose where they uh, either eat or where they buy things from based on those political activities. And I think a lot of companies are being, becoming much more aware uh, based on that. Okay, well, we have about exactly one minute to go, and you are a font of knowledge that we appreciate having <laughs> you on our program here. So I wanted to replug the website, opensecrets.org, and mention a couple of uh, the last few questions have, are related to a couple of articles there in the news link there. Uh, one, of, one title is Representative Katie Porter raised more money than other House Democrats during 2022 election without contributions from corporate PAC or lobbyists. And another one, this is about what to do about some of this, uh, January 11th article, Representative Jason Crow, Democrat, Colorado, reintroduces the End Dark Money Act, which is aiming to crack down on 501c4 nonprofit groups spending to influence U.S. elections. And there's a world of more information there, and we very much appreciate you coming online with us here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.